0: Hey, stay tuned listeners. As many of you know, Cafe Insider is our membership service that includes the Cafe Insider podcast, hosted by former New Jersey Attorney General Ann Milgram and me. Cafe Insiders also get bonus clips from Stay Tuned, a weekly newsletter, and an opportunity to participate in our town calls, conference calls where members can ask me questions directly. Today, we're sharing a portion of our town call from last week. Cafe Insiders asked questions about Epstein, the rule of law, the 2020 election, my favorite lawyer joke, and even weighed in on where I should go for my next family vacation. I hope you'll enjoy this sample. To listen to the full 40-minute session and to participate in our next call and access all other Insider content, become a member at cafe.com slash insider. That's cafe.com slash insider. And now, The Town Call, recorded Wednesday, August 14th. Hey, folks, it's Preet here. I hope and trust that you can all hear me. Thanks for joining us. I'm sitting in the cafe offices in the great city of New York, in Manhattan. I do have some exciting news. For those of you who are fans of my podcast, Stay Tuned, we're going on the road this fall. We'll be in Denver on October 24th with someone that hopefully many of you are familiar with, Shannon Watts, who's a gun reform activist and founder of Moms Demand Action. On November 12th, we'll be in Detroit with Dana Nessel, who is Michigan's 54th Attorney General. And then my friend, a long friend and former colleague, Sally Yates, finally will be a guest on the show for a live show in her hometown of Atlanta, Georgia. And that's on December 4th, 2019. So when you're done with the call, not now, wait to hear the call, go to cafe.com slash tour to find tickets if you're gonna be in any of those cities during those times, hopefully you'll join us. So I guess we should start with some Epstein questions. This question is from Jennifer, who says, while I understand that Epstein's co-conspirators can still be investigated and charged, how likely is that without Epstein's testimony? That's sort of an interesting question, and it goes fundamentally to uh, to how all cases are benefited, uh, but sometimes don't need to be benefited by cooperator testimony. I mean, the assumption in that question, which is a reasonable one and a good one, is that Epstein would flip. Now, there's a a good reason to think that he might have, uh, had he not taken his own life, because he was facing probably life in prison, the prospect of, of dying naturally in prison, and maybe he had good information about other people. The, the one thing to bear in mind though, it's not always necessary, it's not always a good idea for prosecutors to allow someone to cooperate if they're at the top of the food chain. So to the extent he had co-conspirators, depending on what the culpability of other people might be, it might not have been seen as just or fair to use his cooperating testimony against other folks. So it's at best a guess, as to whether or not he would have flipped and whether or not his his flipping would have been useful to folks, often there's sufficient evidence otherwise. So it it seems that there's a trail of documents. It seems like there are other witnesses. And as I've said a couple of times already, the fact that the current United States attorney, Jeffrey Berman made the point, went out of his way to say, you know, we're still fighting for the victims and we're still investigating the case, suggests to me that there's a really good likelihood that they're thinking charges will be forthcoming as to other folks. So thanks for that question. There's a related question uh, from Anna, who asks, "Can all the evidence that was gathered, Ray Epstein, now be used against his accused co-conspirators, even though he's not around to authenticate it and provide testimony?" As Anna and I talked about, uh, something that people may not fully appreciate, the non-lawyers especially, is when you gather evidence from somebody uh, with this, uh, pursuant to a search warrant or other court-authorized process, the person from who you gather that evidence, whether you search their devices, you search their home, or you search their safety deposit box, they have a right to attack uh, that process. They have a right to move to suppress that evidence. And often it doesn't succeed, depending on what the circumstances were. Sometimes it can succeed. But the benefit for, for the prosecutors in this case is the person who has standing almost exclusively to challenge the fruits of that search or suppress the fruits of that search is the person whose property was searched. In this case, that's Epstein. He's no longer around, obviously, to challenge that evidence gathering process. And so that evidence can be used against other people. The the, the subset, without making this an evidence class, a law school evidence class on the issue of authentication, um, that's a complicated issue. And lots and lots of documents, including bank records and certain kinds of testimony are authenticated not through the testimony of someone like Jeffrey Epstein, uh, but by other means. So I expect that if there are charges against other people, you will see folks uh, in the U.S. Attorney's office using this other evidence that was gathered against against Epstein as well. Um, I'm trying to think, I should do another Epstein question before moving on to something more fun. Uh, let's. See. Oh, here's here's a general question about investigations, which I think confuses people the degree of transparency that we have with respect to prosecutors' investigations, not only in SDNY, but sort of everywhere in the country and in the world. This comes from Barbara, who says, Hi, Preet, we hear about so many investigations, but little info on ongoing status of them. Is there any way we can learn updates on ongoing SDNY investigations? Thanks, Barbara. Well, no. <laughs> uh, people who are conducting investigations do them in secret. The most secret aspect of any Federal criminal investigation is obviously what transpires before the grand jury. There are grand jury secrecy laws. We've been hearing about them in connection with the Mueller investigation and all sorts of things. Congress even is having a hard time and has to go to court to fight to get what's known as 6E materials, grand jury materials, even for the purposes of looking into their inquiries and furthering their potential impeachment process. So prosecutors generally don't like to give updates on ongoing investigations for a lot of reasons, depending on what the nature of the update would be. Uh, They don't want the bad guys to run away if they don't know that they're under investigation. They don't want evidence uh, to evaporate or be destroyed. They don't want witnesses in cases to get together, collaborate and, dare I say it, collude on what their testimony is going to be and shape it in ways that's false. Uh, And also it's a little bit not fair to potential targets to be giving updates on investigations. Now, obviously, there are exceptions to that. And there are certain things that prosecutors can do. So for example, most recently, we see in, a, in the case of a mass shooting, there is a huge public interest in there being updates, especially in the initial moments, hours, and days as to what the nature of the crime was, the motivation for the crime, whether or not the person was acting alone or in concert with other people, because people need to understand that their communities are safe, You know, who's working together, federal law enforcement, local law enforcement, what the charges may be, if there might be additional charges, if there are co-conspirators or aiders and abettors who are going to be charged. So those kinds of things are natural, obvious, and there should be updates on them. Uh, You know, with respect to the Epstein investigation, as I just mentioned a couple of minutes ago, the U.S. Attorney Jeff Berman and SDNY made it a point to not give a lot of detail, but to say in a way that I think was reassuring to the public that they're continuing to look Had misconduct on the part of other people, that victims should continue to come forward. So so there are ways that are, I think, okay, justified, appropriate, and ethical of giving updates. But generally speaking, when we were conducting long-term complex investigations of political figures or others, we were not in the habit of, nor would it have been appropriate to come forward and say, well, now we've interviewed these other witnesses or we've engaged in this other process, you know, stay tuned, stay tuned to something that you can say is a very general matter. But you got to be careful about giving those kinds of updates as you go along. Here's a question from Will, sort of a political question. And Will asks, uh, Why has political affiliation become the core identity of so many Americans? Well, that's a very interesting question. And not to quibble with the premise of the question, but let me do that for a moment. I think a lot of people uh, care about their political affiliation Democrat, Republican, Independent, whatever else. I think, however, that in in the current time, I'm not sure how meaningful a description political affiliation is, especially for people who used to be Republicans. There are lots and lots of Republicans, not folks who are in office, who worry about being lambasted and ridiculed and criticized and attacked by the head of the GOP, the current president, Donald Trump, but by other people, many of whom have been on the Stay Tuned podcast. people like George Will and David Frum and Max Boot and others who are, you know, pretty rock-ribbed conservatives over time and have decided they can no longer be part of the party. So for people like that, political affiliation has become, I think, less important than other values that they care about with respect to the country. So so I don't know that that's true. Another thing that strikes me about the question, as I think aloud, uh, going back to what George Will said, is... You know, I don't know why political affiliation has become so important for a lot of people, but maybe that's a mistake. And you can take sort of two, two points of view on this. And, and I've struggled with this issue myself. On the one hand, you don't want to be consumed by politics. You don't want to be consumed by elections. Uh, you want to enjoy other things. You want to enjoy good food. You want to enjoy your family. You want to enjoy sports, entertainment, theater, books. I mean, a lot of people are reading fewer books than they used to read before Trump got elected. And a lot of people have told me that. And maybe some of you are sitting in front of your computers or on the phone and you're nodding with respect to that. Think of how much entertainment you consumed before this crazy dominant figure, Donald Trump, became the president of the United States. So on the one hand, it seems you don't want to be consumed by political affiliation. And that is not your identity because you're a living, breathing, working person with families and friends and work aspirations and artistic aspirations. And so you you want to be more than politics. And George Will says this. You know, George Will says politics should be some small part of your life. On the other hand, uh, and this is why I struggle with the tension, on the other hand, it's a very difficult time. And you almost think uh, if you're a living, breathing person in the world, whatever your aspirations are, you have to care about your country. And if you're someone, maybe some folks on the call, maybe many people on the call, but I'll tell you this is true for me, And it's not just because I have two podcasts and I'm a commentator on CNN. And so part of my job is to sort of focus on politics and on the law and on what's happening in the government and the world. But I care about the country and I care deeply about what Donald Trump is doing to the country and what he's doing to the institutions of the country. And so I can't help but feel sort of more associated with politics in the sense that I think it's important for Donald Trump not to be reelected than I ever had before. I mean, seven and a half years as the United States Attorney, I was essentially an apolitical person, professionally and otherwise. We prosecuted Democrats and Republicans. Uh, I've often joked that the best way to say, uh, to describe federal prosecutors are, there's, there's three political parties in the country. There's Democrat, Republican, and federal prosecutor. The point of which is that in that job, and you worry about this these days a little bit, in that job, there is no space for political affiliation. Now, as a private citizen, and as someone who's seeing all sorts of norms being trampled, uh, I think a lot about politics and political affiliation. And I want people, to the extent I can help persuade them, to affiliate with whoever is in a position to, to curb the excesses of Donald Trump, to curb the abuses of Donald Trump. In fact, end the, the term of Donald Trump in the next election. But it, it's, it's an interesting question. And I think current times render things sort of a little bit topsy-turvy. Let's see, Aaron. Aaron. What news sources do you use most? Notwithstanding my criticism of the Twitter, that's not a source of news, it's a platform from which I get news from other sources. But I, I do get a lot of news from, from being on Twitter and scrolling through my feed. You know, I rely on, on all the, the major publications, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post in particular. Um, I also get news from, from the tabloids in New York. Um, it's an old habit from when I was in public office and they were covering our cases. Uh, there are also other great outlets like Buzzfeed um, and, and digital outfits and, and podcasts. But something I said a long time ago is, bears repeating, and that is there, there's so much misinformation and there's so much quick scoops on, on stuff that the important thing is not necessarily where you get your news from, but that you get your news from multiple sources. Uh, you know, I watch multiple cable news channels. On Twitter, I follow people who I don't agree with, some people who are fairly odious. And I will look at articles that they have read. I, I, get, I, get, I get news and information from the National Review online. I don't agree with, you know, a lot of the stuff. But I like to know what other people are thinking and in what ways that, that people who disagree with my point of view, how are they disagreeing with them? What facts are people I tend to agree with getting wrong? Because people get things wrong when they're in your political wheelhouse as well. So, so I, I, think, I think that's very important um, to get news from, from a variety of sources. Dana asks, I love the chapter in your book about interrogation. Do members of Congress have coaches when they prep for hearings? Some are great and others are horrible. (laughs) So I'm not going to talk about which are great and which are horrible. I I have uh, not been shy about criticizing the ways that members of Congress ask questions. Some people are really excellent. And the ones who are excellent are the ones who listen to the answers being given and then respond uh, not based on questions that are written verbatim for them by staff members, but have a deep understanding of the material and then go where the questioning leads them to go. I mean, imagine if on my podcast, when I do interviews on Stay Tuned, that I, you know, literally in a regimented way, asked in a predetermined order and succession, typed up questions that someone had given me. Um, I have a lot of preparation. I have have an amazing team that's sitting around the table here that helps me think about the interviews. It helps me think about the questions to ask, think about the order. But then when I get in the room with the person, you know, the conversation can sometimes go places where you don't expect. And so I think that's a problem with a lot of members of Congress. In fairness to them, they're really, really busy. Many members of Congress sit on multiple committees. They can't be experts in everything. And there might be you know, sort of a narrow cast hearing on some point of substance or policy on which they're not expert, and they have five minutes to ask a question, especially in the House. You know, They have to rely a lot on staff. To the extent you're asking about coaches, yeah, look, I, I played the role most frequently when I was chief counsel to Senator Schumer. And we knew there was an important hearing coming up. I um, actually kind of enjoyed it uh, and relished the opportunity to, to play the role, I, you know, to play the role of John Roberts or Sam Alito, which I got to do during the Supreme Court confirmation hearings. I have, can't reveal, on, on other occasions uh, in, in my recent life, you know, helped a member of Congress or two think about how to ask questions by, by playing the role of the witness who's gonna be in the hot seat, because uh, I think that's important to do. And I think, I think good members of Congress uh, and diligent members of Congress, as Senator Schumer used to do when I worked for him years ago, employ that strategy. And, and you hear about it, particularly in, in the big time things like um, Supreme Court nomination hearings or huge oversight hearings. I think it's a very good and important thing to do. This is a question, oh, you know, we talked about this a little bit a couple of weeks ago, but maybe I can recap. Hi, Preet, this is Tessa from Los Angeles. I was wondering what repercussions do you think will come from Newsom signing the law to require presidential candidates to supply their tax returns? Nothing, right? It's going to die in court. Trump will coast through as usual. So you're referring to the law signed into, um, or the bill signed into law by Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, which requires that if you want to compete in the primary for, for the presidency in 2020, you have to disclose some years of tax returns. You know, it's obviously geared towards Trump. It's obviously about Trump. As I think Ann and I discussed on 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 a previous show, uh, Jerry Brown, who's not a Trump fan and is not, uh, you know, a closet conservative, decided not to sign that into law because he was worried about the slippery slope of then red states adding all sorts of uh, prohibitions and uh, and hoops for people who are Democrats uh, to have to meet before they could be on the ballot. So look, I think it's an interesting point. Um, We were flattered. That Gavin Newsom in his signing statement referred to work that I've done through the Brennan Center with Governor Christy Todd Whitman on the Democracy Task Force, which suggests that there should be a federal law uh, that that requires this kind of thing with respect to a presidential election. I think federal law is probably the better way to go at it. I think experts are split. When you say it's going to die in court, experts are a little bit split on the constitutionality of it. I think they're smart and good people who think There's a good argument for its constitutionality, notwithstanding that sort of federal election, the federal election clause in the Constitution should be supreme and should dominate over a state uh, trying to mess with it. Uh, And there are people on the other side who are also reasonable and smart and thoughtful who think this is a problem. In either event, the consequence, as we also discussed on a previous show, is that I don't see any way this affects uh, or impedes Donald Trump's ability to be on the general election ballot in California because this only relates to primaries. They, they understand legally they can't inflict this requirement on the general election. So it's symbolic, it's important. I think it's a good issue for the Congress to take up, maybe for states to take up, and maybe this will be a test case and we'll see what happens. But right now, I think it's a, it's a little bit of a jump ball. I hope you enjoyed this sample recording from our town call. To learn more about the Cafe Insider membership and to join, go to cafe.com slash insider your voice matters more than ever before until next time I'm Preet Bharara